This is LP Giobi, and you are listening to Behind the Decks. Hello again, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Behind the Decks, an event podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cogger. Each pod, I check in with DJs and producers from the UK and beyond, discussing their musical journeys, their artistry, and most importantly, the person behind the decks. My special guest for this episode, listeners, is someone I also connected with through friend of the pod, Jar Funk, and another Aussie R&B maestro. His name is Sean, or as he's otherwise brilliantly known, Ninth Floor Funk Apartment. He's another great bloke in the music industry, and I hope will illuminate on some of the realities that come with being a DJ and producer outside the superstar DJ bubble. Get comfy and have a listen as I go behind the decks with Ninth Floor Funk Apartment. Sean, welcome to Behind the Decks, mate. Thanks so much for coming on. I know this is your first ever podcast appearance, so don't worry, I'll try and make it as enjoyable experience for you as I can. First things first, how are you, mate, and how are you coping with the, I guess, the general madness right now? I don't know what it's like in um, in Perth, but in Australia, but maybe you're handling it a bit better than, than we are in here in the UK. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on the show. I really do appreciate that. Yeah, I I was probably one of those that were fortunate enough, I guess, not to lose my employment, unlike a lot of people. So, yeah, um, still at least I've got some some money coming in, unlike a lot of the unfortunate people out there. But um, yeah, I'm doing great. Yep, everything's sort of going well, and um, yeah, keen to have a good chat. Hopefully, we can talk about some some things that are uh, um, you know gonna catch the attention of the listeners and you know make for interesting conversation brilliant we've got a lot to get uh through shall we crack on let's start at the beginning sean and talk about your journey as ninth floor funk apartment so before we dive into your djing journey which came before your producing journey just tell me a bit about the story behind that amazing name is it because you're having some major funk boogies on the ninth floor of your apartment block or is there a deeper meaning behind it <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's a really funny one. Um, I don't actually live in an, in an apartment, (laughs) I guess sort of, yeah, like that's probably, uh, sort of a goal further down the line, but, um, yeah, I guess sort of people have asked me that question a few times, like people probably think I actually live in in an apartment. Yeah. It was literally, uh, one of the first things that just came to my mind. Um, like I was standing, uh, outside uh, Lockie's doorstep, um, Lockie, a.k.a. Jafunk. And um, we'd sort of just finished that Up To You single. And he's like, you got to have like a name. And I like literally said that on his doorstep. I said, oh, what about Ninth Floor Funk Apartment? And he's like, oh, yeah, that's cool. So I guess I just ran with that. <laughs> just tell me a bit about how your love for music, DJing and, and producing started now. You know, who were your musical influences growing up? You know, maybe your favorite artists and records that shaped you as a producer and a person you are today? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a good question, actually. Um, I guess I can't really pinpoint it to one one particular artist. Um, I think sort of like my love for music uh, was something that was just ingrained as sort of part of my cognitive makeup right from my early childhood, like literally as far back as I can remember. Um, I guess like there were certain musical compositions per se. They were just pure ear candy to me. Every time I heard these sort of, they were very, you know, funk soul based uh, R&B style sort of pop records that were sort of getting played in the, I would say, late 80s to mid 90s. I guess, you know, I was I was pretty young. So um, I guess sort of the influences for me were, I guess, if I could probably give you some examples, tracks like Hall and Oats, I Can't Go For That, the early human nature tracks, like I remember this track called Whisper Your Name when I was a kid. This uh, soul singer named Denny Hines, who's actually the daughter of Marsha Hines, and she had this uh, sort of funk soul album that got played a lot on commercial radio back in the day. Um, And then, yeah, sort of George Michael. I remember this track called Too Funky when I was a kid. I just used to love that. Tracks like Can We Talk by Tevin Campbell, who was another sort of R&B artist sort of back in the mid-'90s. So, yeah, I guess uh, sort of, yeah, funk, soul, pop, style music I guess was my first influence like growing up sort of more towards sort of just before hitting my teens or 
sort of when I was in my teens, uh, sort of artists like Jeanette Jackson, um, Earth, Wind and Fire, um, a lot of like the Mariah Carey songs and especially stuff like anything basically produced by the Neptunes. <laughs> and then also like the, the 2000s garage, like Craig David and the Artful Dodger. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with those. <laughs> Let's talk about the DJ journey first. You spent a significant period of your life DJing in a duo. You know, who was the person you were sort of gallivanting around with from 2010 to 2015? And then what were those experiences like? Were you were you living the sort of stereotypical DJ party lifestyle? You mentioned one very special Armin Van Buren set off air, which started it all off, if I'm right in saying. Yeah, I think it was that set. And I can remember sort of going to this one local night, sort of, I reckon it, I'm, it must have been my early 20s. Obviously, you know, before like I'd I'd sort of grown up and I'd and I'd been a real music head my entire life, I guess from just a listener sort of side of things. But yeah, I can remember I went to Armin Van Buren, I think it must have been two thousand eight, where he did this all night set. Um that sort of I was just sort of standing over the um it was this club called Metro City in Perth where it's sort of got like all these levels where you can kind of see over the top of the DJ booth and you can actually see sort of where Armin was sort of queuing up the records and queuing up the next track and, you know, you could see him on the mixer and all that sort of thing. And, yeah, that literally, I just thought, wow, that's that's amazing. I, I can remember um, sitting there with sort of spirals in my eyeballs the whole time and I'd, and I'd sat at the, at the top and, like, got this great sort of vantage point and um, all of a sudden I got this glass of water thrown in my face and I'm like, whoa, whoa where did that come from? And it, didn't realize I'd accidentally taken this this girl's seat who she must have gone off to the bathroom or something like that and instead of asking me if I could move she kind of just threw a glass of water at me and I was just like oh, oh well I'm too into I'm like too into, into into Armin and I'm just loving loving the set so yeah you know it was um just uh it was definitely that set that sort of started it all off and I also sort of later on I went to this um, little lounge bar that was in sort of West Perth and they were playing all of this like uh, funky house and sort of filtered disco that was being played there and I was out with my mate and we were kind of like supposed to be out there sort of talking to girls and all that sort of thing as you do in clubs but as soon as I heard this sort of this filtered disco and all these remixes of like these crazy like just sort of like real jazzy mixes of like sort of commercial records and that I was literally just like wow what is this um, and I can remember sort of the setting like the DJ had this booth that was sort of behind like a, a indoor pond full of water and I literally couldn't talk to anyone there because I was so obsessed with just this vibe that was going on and like those songs that were being played sort of emphasized sort of the early sort of funk soulful sort of pop songs that I used to love when I was a kid and so yeah from that point on my mate had actually given me sort of a copy of Virtual DJ sort of around the same time and I was actually finishing up my uh, engineering contract job that I had and I had this huge annual leave payout at the end because I didn't really take a lot of leave during my time there and so yeah I decided this is what I'm going to be doing even sort of towards the end of my uh, contract instead of me sort of playing songs like everyone else would through their you know through their phone or whatnot I would actually have my laptop there and a copy of virtual DJ and I, and I would actually mix my songs <laughs> whilst I was working whilst I was working at the office yeah I once I got this payout I decided well I'm going to get my first set of CDJs and a and a mixer and I decided yep that is what I'm going to be doing so yeah I walked into Cosmic Sound which is a sort of a local music shop in Perth with the entire Anjuna Deep collection which was you know you, you may be familiar with Anjuna Deep which is like a um, sort of a progressive house type label yeah I became sort of instant mates with the store manager there so yeah shout out to you Mike <laughs> Yeah, so Mike, who I sort of became mates with, his brother sort of at the same time got introduced to sort of the music scene and um, decided that he wanted to get into DJing also. So um, his brother, he's also, his name's also Sean, so shout out to you, my man. <laughs> yeah, we decided that we'd sort of start DJing together in a a duo and actually it was it was really quite 
successful sort of throughout that period of time yeah like we played all kinds of parties and events sort of of all different styles like it wasn't just you know playing at house parties and whatnot I think like it started out like that but yeah like we mostly ended up being known for you know for playing as a support act for a lot of the touring trance and progressive house artists so yeah actually the duo name was called Flair. And yeah, we ended up supporting um, artists like Gareth Emery, uh, JTech, uh, Marlo, I guess, you know, to name a few. Um, and so, yeah, we played mostly a mix of like funky, bouncy sort of house music that was sort of tailored towards uh, setting the mood and the atmosphere in the club. So it, we weren't playing bangers and all that sort of thing. We were kind of like kind of like the warm up DJs, like you'd sort of go into the club and we were there. Um, sort of setting setting the vibe and that was good for me because that was sort of the music that I was kind of more that was more my style as well so it was definitely like I was able to sort of lose myself in the music as well and I think when um, people see your stage presence it really you know people really gravitate like if you're really enjoying the set people really gravitate to sort of your energy and your vibe that you're that you're bringing to the club so yeah it was um the other thing that you mentioned was, um, was it sort of the t- stereotypical EDM rock star kind of party life? Definitely not. <laughs> I think for the most part, I would say at least 95% of the gigs I played would um, in no way sort of highlighted that lifestyle. I definitely felt that sort of, I think sort of when I was playing um, the warm-up set for Gareth Emery, um, I could kind of feel like there was a sense of elevated hierarchical status um, associated with playing those gigs but that was sort of really far and few between I guess most of my DJing was definitely not a stereotypical EDM DJ kind of thing. Let's talk about the story behind your first ever DJ set you know how did that come about and what was the mental process like before during and after that experience and and also on every behind the decks we always talk about one bad DJ set Now, every DJ has at least one bad set in their life, even the biggest wizards on the decks. Is there a story that you feel comfortable sharing with the listeners about that as well? For sure. Yeah, I I love sharing these stories. And I think that it's great to have a bad set. They're actually some of the funniest stories ever. So I think, yeah, I guess I'll share mine. Well, I guess I'll share my DJing experience first, which was sort of, well, if you want to sort of my first quote unquote real DJing experience that was at this um, place called Shape Bar um, and it was sort of like a local trance club sort of we it would just be like a local trance night sort, sort of thing um, and so yeah I guess I was a little anxious to begin with but because I've been doing it so much and I've been practicing so much that you know that sort of thing quickly wore off and I was able to just sort of deal with it and yeah just play a really enjoyable set without any kind of uh, struggle really like I think the thing that I struggled the most with was was oh gee what if we get some dodgy booth monitors or something like that but yeah once I sort of played a few tunes yeah that was sort of all that anxiety sort of went out the window but I think yeah sort of around that time um, I must have been in my early 20s as well want to talk about a bad gig yeah I ended up playing at this house party this girl that I knew at the time she had a she was having a 21st or something like that and anyways yeah so sort of me and the crew sort of went over to to play at this house party and I wasn't at the time sort of I didn't have that experience to understand what it meant to read a crowd and so I ended up playing this dirty Dutch electro to a crowd of devoted Christians (laughs) I ended up playing I think the first song that I played it was just like like it was it was like alienating to them and I literally cleared the whole dance floor within like a couple of songs and my mate just walks over and goes what the hell's wrong with you man you you like totally trashed this party like dude you gotta know your audience and all that sort of thing so yeah I definitely learned to choose the right tracks for the venue like I never really made that mistake again but yeah, it was it was just like me going crazy at this party without any kind of regard for the audience that I was playing for. So yeah, that was probably the worst set that I ever had. I think I had a good um, sort of mentor group around me that taught me a lot of lessons from the sort of from early on that I didn't make such stupid mistakes again or or have any really bad sets. Like there are obviously sets like when you go to when you have to DJ at a house party, sometimes you're just going to get people that just, you know, they have colder blood than most reptiles and they're just going to just not be into it or 
it doesn't really matter what you do. It's just the life of the party. You can only do so much as a DJ. You can't always control sort of how the rest of, of the audience behave. And I think, you know, most house parties are pretty good, but then, yeah, you do get, get the odd few and you just got to adapt and um, do the best you can. And that's just part of the gig. From a mental health perspective, Sean, what impact does DJing have on you? Is it a form of escapism? Is it um, somewhere you can kind of be yourself or is it somewhere is it somewhere you you, you don't have to be yourself and and what is your a kind of working attitude towards it as, as a as a DJ too DJing for me was it, it was really good for me and for my mental health I had some of the best memories of my life during that period of time when I was DJing yeah it was more than just a job to me like it didn't pay well but you know the sort of life experiences that you get from it you know it made it all worthwhile so yeah I guess in terms of it being sort of a form of escapism I guess that was dependable on the type of event that I was playing Um, I guess I was lucky enough in that a lot of the gigs that I played were sort of very niche events I was playing a lot of uh, funky house and uh, progressive house and sort of all that really like sort of fun bouncy style of music that I'm kind of known for in my own songs and that was you know that was kind of a form of escapism to me I think when you're so passionate about it and then other people in the in the club or wherever it is that you're playing see how passionate you are about it then they also feed off that energy and then it sort of it brings more life to the club and to the event and and I think it's just good for everyone so let's talk about how the kind of DJ journey ended a bit and how the music production journey began sort of sort of the phoenix rising from the ashes if you will why did you decide to call time on on djing and how did ninth floor funk apartment begin like i was kind of stuck at the crossroads really with what i was going to do with my life at the time when i was djing i didn't actually have a full-time job for a lot of that period of time so I sort of had casual work, so I was able to DJ out a lot in clubs and that without it affecting my performance at work. So when I got employed, I ended up having to, because I'd also sort of started sort of in my early stages of production. And I think sort of I went over to my mate's house a lot and he produces under an artist known as Illuminor. He's actually um, quite a well-known trance and progressive artist. He gets plays on sort of... Armin Van Buren's radio show, Above and Beyond, all of those um, sorts of shows. Yeah, like I, at the time, like I'd got really, I was looking at sort of what he was doing in uh, FL Studio and all that. And I was like, what do you mean? You can do all this stuff on a computer? You can like, and I just sort of, sort of went from being obsessed with DJing to looking at production and being like, wow, this is like next level. This is amazing kind of thing. And yeah, because I was, also working full time I kind of ended up at the crossroads as well do I want to continue DJing and then spending all that time playing DJ sets or do I want to start music production and um, it was it was a pretty easy answer for me like I wanted to like I'm very much like when I DJ like obviously sort of understand the crowds but it is there is a lot of that artistry component that sort of comes through and you just want to take that further and that was in music production so so yeah I just decided that I was going to spend as much time as possible producing and I didn't just sort of quit DJing cold turkey it was just a gradual diminish per se you know I just ended up uh, not doing as much to the point where I sort of just eventually stopped. <laughs> what sound did you want to create as Ninth Floor Funk Apartment? I mean, one word in there might give it away, but then again, Panic of the Disco made pop punk, not disco. As you broke into the scene, um, you know, who were the, some of the peers you admired or wanted to even emulate as well? You know, we're having this chat because of Jar Funk, you know, how did you meet him and did he help you kind of crystallize the sound that you wanted to make? And, and was he someone or is someone you turn to in the scene for support when you might be struggling mentally as well? Yeah, well, I guess I'm kind of here because of Jafunk. And yeah, sort of, he's about the only person that I really know sort of in the music scene that I can, like, we chat on a pretty much daily basis. Like, we're always sharing ideas and um, sharing music and all that sort of thing with each other. So, yeah, I don't think sort of after I um, stopped DJing that I was sort of part of a scene, so to speak. I think I was just, just a guy who was making music for their own enjoyment. Um, I didn't really like Perth. We don't really have like a, a funk scene or a, or a disco scene or anything like that. We, 
it's it's not really as abundant as what it would be in the UK. So yeah, like um, in terms of who I wanted to emulate, um, I guess, yeah, sort of Pomo, Catronata, a couple of main ones that come to mind and really anything that was sort of played on Selection. You're probably familiar with Selection Radio. I mean, I listen to that like pretty much every week. So yeah, I always get a lot of ideas from that radio show and that has so many different artists that are on there. It's it's a great thing because I'm the, sort of the type of person who likes to reverse engineer a lot of work from other artists. And yeah, there's always like continuous inspiration that can be had on that show. So So yeah. Comparing DJing to producing, Sean, which one have you found is a better tool to help with your mental health creatively or otherwise? Do you find one more cathartic or a better escape than the other? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that producing is the more intrinsically rewarding side of it. But I think that DJing is better for your social skills. So yeah, you know, when you're producing, you know, you can spend hours and hours sort of, you know, confined to a studio, and you're not really interacting with people. And then you sort of lose that ability to just go out and you know, just have conversations with people, you know, because you've been too uh, focused on sort of getting better at producing music. Whereas I think DJing is more, you're sort of playing in front of the audience and you're, you're basically controlling the vibe of the party. Um, You're controlling everything. It's, it's all sort of the whole dynamic of the club is built around you and you have to be sort of have that sort of, sort of social ability to be the life of the party you're the one who's you know controlling the music so yeah it's um it's definitely i don't know if i can sort of pinpoint which one is better i think they both they're both good things and they serve completely different purposes Um, but in terms if i was to pick one i would probably pick music production because of that it's it's work that is um, very dear to me Um, it's always gonna like once i post it out to the world that it's always going to be there and I consider that to be like my personal legacy and the fact that I think you know I've been sort of complimented from for, for playing some great DJ sets but that's nothing in comparison to sort of some of the messages that I've received from people um, in the past who have said hey you know that that song you made really changed my life and you know I think that's to me, the, one of the most rewarding things is that something that you created, um, which was a pure, you know, artist creativity thing was, um, you know, impacted someone uh, like that. So, yeah, I would probably say production. Let's talk about the small collection of records you've put out so far. So your first record was actually a collaboration with Jar Funk when you made a record called Up To You. Just tell me about how that came about. And then the other two records you put out since called Let You Know and Find Find Another Love. Um, up to you was sort of we were um, at the time I I can remember I I was getting really into sort of my my music theory and sort of being able to play like crazy chords and I bought this book um, which at the time I thought was sort of the holy grail of exotic gospel chords like from the sort of um american sort of black gospel scene yeah i was just uh messing around and i just sort of snapchatted i must have snapchatted or sent it via messenger sort of the intro chord progression of up to you i just sent that to him i was like hey check this out and like knowing lachlan for what he's like he just literally thought my god those are some those chords are crazy and so he's like man come over and let's let's go do a session so yeah i went over to his house um sort of you know we at that point in time we'd been friends for quite some some time yeah so like i'd gone over to his house and we we're gonna do like a marathon uh weekend studio sesh and so yeah put those chords in and lachlan was actually working on another track at the time and i think he kind of was getting a bit bored of the chords that he had in that track but that track actually contained the baseline of up to you and it just so happened to co- coincidentally we just threw my chord progression over his baseline and we both looked at each other and just started laughing our head off and yeah that sort of was the beginnings of the of the up to you track so yeah we ended up sort of spending you know two solid days 
writing that song from start to finish. And then sort of Lockie sent me a demo sort of later on in the week. I think at the time, like I was still pretty, like I would consider myself at the time quite new to production and sort of my my mix down processes were not particularly crash hot. So in terms of like the audio engineering behind that, that was really sort of Lachlan's uh, typical Jafunk sound that you sort of get from um, his other records. And then, yeah, just a lot of combination of both of our musical influences. So yeah, that's sort of uh, how that one came about. We spoke off air about this music work-life balance, mate, and this constant battle of wanting to devote time to music and have that ambition to do it full-time, but still having that perhaps fear or anxiety about giving up your stable and, and well-paid full-time job. Just firstly, does does the the amount of tracks that you've put out kind of reflect that difficulty in the work-life balance? And also, just talk to me about that mental state and this concept of a live time versus dead time you told me about. Absolutely. You know, 100%. Like I work uh, a full-time job that occupies, I would say, geez, do some calculations. I would say at least like two thirds of my time is taken up working full-time during the week. So I only really get sort of the weekend to really sort of get into my hobbies. And it's really difficult to, to switch from what you do on a technical side in terms of your day job and then switch it to something that is creative. So yeah, like over the period that I've had in my spare time, I have had to devote a lot of it to learning the the music production process and learning all of the um, different disciplines inside of it. Like it's, you can be a good uh, songwriter, but you may not be the best at mix downs, for example, or, or vice versa. You could be great at guitar, but have no other skills or you could be great at piano, but not be so great at sort of, you know, arranging. Yeah, I'd sort of had to um, spend all of the remaining time that I had away from my day job learning every craft so that I could, you know, be good enough to perform every part of the music production process. So, yeah, that was quite a, you know, these things take time. You have to put in hundreds of hours doing it. Like I may have a a very small amount of records that are out, but the reality behind it is that I have spent hours and I've made hundreds of songs that just I just never put out because I didn't think that, well, they were either just experimental or I didn't think they, they made the cut, they didn't represent what I was about. I didn't feel like um, that was something I wanted to put out. And then some of them, like if I was to look back through sort of the music that I made that I didn't put out, you know, the mix downs weren't great. They didn't sort of, they didn't make the cut at the time, but, you know, I've really worked on that and got a lot better at all aspects of production. So music perfectionism culture. There is that side of thing, but um, I guess what I want to talk about first is sort of, sort of like the hierarchy of needs, like creativity and music production. Well, you can't really facilitate that unless you have a job and you're supporting yourself and you've got an income and you're not relying on other people to accommodate you. And I think that is what comes first and foremost is sort of our basic survival, like, you know, keeping a roof over over your head, you know, being able to afford things and being able to produce music comes second to that, having to fulfill your responsibilities was sort of paramount. <laughs> so so yeah, there's that. Um, yeah, I do struggle a bit with that music perfectionism, especially prior to sort of putting out my first song. Like because we listen to like our own music production, like we loop our songs over and over and over, it gets to the point where we just stop hearing it like an average listener would. And I think that we ended up we end up sort of tricking ourselves a bit that like because we've heard it sort of a billion times over that. We think it sucks. We hear every minor detail in the song that sounds imperfect. We hear every little frequency in the song that we just go, oh, well, I have to notch out this or I have to compress this. And it gets to the point where you sort of drive yourself crazy over sort of trying to trying to be too perfect. I think I was lucky in that the song, the other two songs that I put out, I had that comfort in sort of Lachlan saying, hey, these are not bad songs. You should just put them up, you know? And so I did. And 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 yeah, you know, he was totally right about that. Like I've not, you think that someone's going to say, oh, you didn't compress your baseline enough or something like that. But, you know, people are just, you know, they don't listen to music in the way that producers listen to music. So that broader audience, they don't think like we do. So 
yeah, it's definitely something that like in terms of my musical journey, sort of a mentality that I need to work on and I'm still working on. And uh, hopefully at some point in time, you'll see a few more records from me. For any DJs or producers who might be listening to this pod, Sean, and might be struggling with their mental health, you know, what would you say to them? And if they are wanting to give it a go, what message or advice would you say to them from your experience? I guess like I'm not really a fan of giving out prescriptions per se, but sort of first and 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 foremost, I would say definitely go and get professional help. Like if you're really struggling um, with something mentally, you've got to go and, and speak to a, a psychologist or a counsellor or, you know, some kind of place that um, deals with these things professionally. But yeah, I guess it's sort of um, dependable on what is triggering the mental health issue um, and sort of the angle that you approach it. Um, I think the best advice that, that I can give is one that is based on pragmatism. For example, like in order to be good at something that you need to put in the hard work and the process of failing over and over and over is the results. And I think that you'll feel a lot better mentally when you put in that hard work. You've ever heard the motto that quitters never win and winners never quit. So it doesn't matter how many times you go down, you just keep getting back up and and you, you keep on hustling. So yeah, like personally for me, like that's sort of my mindset. Like I would rather go down swinging than have never tried at all. And so yeah, with people that are are struggling like I really do have a lot of empathy for those who really have a crack in life and and you know you see them make make the mistakes and and you kind of know that yeah you know part of making all the mistakes is is what makes you you tougher and yeah I think we've all sort of got to got to go through and learn that process I would say anyone um, who's struggling maybe have a look at sort of what you're doing in your downtime like um, I think you know if you're watching tv all day or you're on facebook you know playing victimology poker with people on on facebook and twitter and that i don't know if that's really the best sort of thing for your mental health like to me there are a lot of um, other things that you could be doing that are more intrinsically rewarding so like you know it doesn't have to be music or anything it can be it can be anything but as long as you're sort of you know acquiring like a skill set of some kind i think yeah i think that's sort of like having a sense of purpose that you're creating an impact on other people also, but it's sort of intrinsically rewarding to you by doing it. So, yeah. We've talked about Ninth Floor Funk Apartment. Let's go behind the decks and talk about your own journey, Sean. So firstly, tell me a bit about your early life in Perth, Australia, where you grew up, you know, your childhood and your, childhood and your teenage years, you know, were there any early mental health experiences during this time you can pinpoint back you know who's the Sean we meet here I I was surprised when you told me you weren't actually a musical child yeah that's yeah I don't think I really got into music like from a uh like artist point of view until I was definitely somewhere in my early to mid 20s so yeah um I think just at heart I was always artistic it's just that I never sort of during my childhood expressed the opportunity um or really got encouraged to to get into it and yeah like you know I was pretty I was a very sort of quiet kind of reserved type kid yeah I didn't really have the courage uh sort of to ever speak up about wanting to do it so yeah you know it is what it is and you know I decided that sort of later in life you know when I when I had a bit of cash in hand that it was a good idea to go out and get some gear and really give it a crack so that's why we're here <laughs> When we spoke off air, Sean, one thing that came up quite early on in your life was your parents divorcing when you were five years old. Now, I'm sure for anyone whose parents are divorced, any age isn't a good age. But I imagine when you were five, if you can remember it, it could have been quite a confusing and traumatic moment. Was that the case or did they try and make it as sort of trauma free as possible, if that makes sense? Yeah, I guess my memory of it is really quite vague. But I guess I can remember sort of, you know, my parents giving me their versions of what was going on. And I was just kind of sitting there like, you know, with spirals in my eyes trying to comprehend the situation. I can't really like if I sort of think about it now, I can't really say that it was traumatic. I guess it was just I thought that was just normal. So I was just sort of told, oh, you know, this is what's happening and this is the way it is. Yeah. So like I didn't think that. I was in any way sort of traumatized by the situation. Yeah, you know, 
divorce is something that is what's the divorce right now like you know i know that sort of um in the western democracies it must be somewhere around that 40 to 50 percent mark i mean people it happens all the time so yeah you know um it is what it is and you know i'm I'm not going to sit here and and sort of complain about it or, or anything like that you know i don't have any sort of grudges or or that so just building from that sean obviously your mum and dad would have been entering new relationships and you might have had stepmums and stepdads contend with at a really early age perhaps even new half brothers or half sisters what was that like for you growing up and, and how did you split your time between both your parents you know i'm sure we're going to get onto it how your dad uh, and what happened to your dad but just talk to me about those early stages if you can first yeah so my parents were I think they were like 15 years apart so my dad was a lot older than than my mum and I think he'd had a previous marriage with two children and that was in New Zealand so um, I've never actually met any of them I know that one of the children actually died of some kind of rare uh, disorder of some kind I'm I'm really unsure I don't sort of haven't really been told a lot yeah apparently I do have like a half brother that's sort of a lot older than I am not that I've ever met met the guy but yeah like um I I was sort of like I was kind of the second family you know my my dad decided that he didn't want to be parentally invested in his previous marriage and I guess that sort of also transitioned to the second one that he had also and again you know that's 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 fair enough <laughs> like you know I, I, I'm not going to sit around sulking about it or anything like that yeah you know it is what it is just on that at the age of nine or ten I think you told me your dad um then vanished I mean is the phrase you use you said he was never to be seen again just firstly just tell me a bit how what you remember about this period of your life and maybe how your mum broke the news to you and, and secondly what impact did that have on you and your mental health you know growing up without not just your dad in your life but not knowing even where he was so you could contact him yeah it's a good question i think it, if i remember correct it was more my dad that broke the news to me all i can I, like i have pretty vague memory of it but um i can sort of remember when i was a kid that he sat down with me and just said if you ever want to hate me later on in life i don't blame you and sort of i was just like what is he talking about i don't quite understand and i think what he was doing was sort of covertly planning to you know disappear and i didn't quite understand what he meant at the time but now i sort of do and i don't think like i'm sort of 31 now i don't really say that i hate him or anything like it's it, it's i don't really have any kind of for lack of a better word hatred towards towards my dad for sort of going about the way he did but yeah you know like I spent I think sort of when my parents got divorced I spent you know 99% of the time was spent with my mum and then sort of you know I must have been around nine or ten sort of I didn't see my dad after that so in terms of like would I contact him now probably not and I guess the reason why that is is based on uh, the the desire dynamic Um, and that is you cannot negotiate genuine desire so what I'm saying by that is that if people are not reciprocal say you try and reach out or or whatever then their desire is never genuine and there's something that's mitigating it so I don't really go around chasing people who are not reciprocal and that's sort of my family included like you know if my dad wanted to be there he would have done so and it would have been based on genuine desire to do it so yeah I I'm on social media, I'm on Facebook, um, I can be contacted so many different ways that he could have always reached out to me. But if he didn't want to, that's also okay with me as well. Out of this, would you say the relationship with your mum became even stronger because she had to, I guess, for a time do both roles? And how do you reflect on that period of your life growing up with her? My mum did the best that she could do. Like she was, you know, she was pretty young when she had children sort of you know, comparison to nowadays. Yeah, like um, she did the best that she could do um, as a mother. Yeah, I think, you know, she could only do, and she did do the best that she could do as a mother. Going into secondary school, as we Brits call it, would it be fair to say that the school environment wasn't something you enjoyed or was it something that you kind of took little bits from? I definitely, I definitely didn't, didn't enjoy it for reasons probably different to yours, but just tell me a bit about that period of your life and what positives maybe you can pick from it. You said to me off air that you did learn some really valuable skills about, you know, resilience and determination from some PE coaches, if that's right. 
Yeah, that yeah, that's right. I guess sort of I did have a lot of very positively masculine influences that I consider um well that was sort of surrounding me throughout my childhood. So yeah, like like I didn't do so well at school. I think I was pretty average. But yeah, I guess the thing that I had going for me that I was really into sports and I was very good at sports. I was sort of well above average when it came to um, playing any kind of sport. So yeah, I had a lot of like great coaches. Um, I used to play cricket and um, I ended up sort of making the district's cricket team for a period of time uh, during high school. And you know, I can remember um, we were playing this one match. Um, I was actually one of the main strike bowlers and I used to open the bowling for my club. Yeah, I can remember um, in a game that we'd lost a lot of wickets and I sort of batted more down the tail end. I was still like a pretty decent tail ender, like I could really hit the ball. And we were sort of 40 runs down, I can remember, with about five overs remaining. And I remember my coach saying, you know, we're not here for a participation trophy. We are here to win the game and we need to get these runs. So you're either going to go for it or we're going to get all out. So you don't have a choice here. You're going for it. And so I did. And yeah, I can remember, I think I hit sort of four fours and a six off one over, ended up sort of winning the game. And I think I hit sort of 42 runs off like 19 balls or something to win the game. But it's that sort of, you know, that 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 coaching that really instills healthy competition and that you're here, you're here to play to win. You know, you're not here for for a participation trophy in life. You're always you're always here to be a winner. So yeah, like it's important to have those those kind of role models around. And also um I did sort of some martial arts as well when I was growing up, um, particularly towards the latter end of high school. Like I wanted to do it sort of when I was a lot younger, but yeah, like I think I realized that the environment at school, you kind of needed to have sort of the ability to defend yourself because, you know, fights just happen at school. It's just a part of what happens growing up. It was sort of how things were for me, especially when, when I was growing up in school and sort of, you know, people would fight on the oval and all that sort of thing. And I think that learning martial arts also really taught me resilience and, you know, how to hold hold my own. Like I was quite shy and reserved uh, throughout most of my school, even though I was quite a good sportsman. It kind of saved me doing martial arts. I think it really instilled a lot of great values when you train and they put you, you know, you start sparring that you really get sort of taught that they put you through the ringer. <laughs> and um, I think it's good for even like, people who are bullies to go and do it because they probably won't be bullies after because they've been beaten up by someone who was better than them. So yeah, I think martial arts is one thing. I think it's really important. I think it's important that all children learn martial arts. So after you left secondary school, you know, who's the Sean we meet here? Would you say you came out of your shell a bit more when you had sort of greater academic freedom and, and life freedom? I think you, I remember you saying, when we spoke off air that you definitely had a rebellious nature, maybe not, a re you weren't a complete tearaway, but you definitely had a little bit of a cheeky nature. I was not a total tearaway, no, but I, I definitely had a rebellious nature. Like I can remember when the teachers were like, oh, well, you know, anyone um, who doesn't sort of conform to the school values won't be going to the school ball. And I'm just like, yeah, well, you know what? I don't really care. And I don't really give a damn about going to the school ball. So I'm doing what I'm doing. And that was sort of my attitude at the time. And yeah, I can remember sort of in art class where I was not doing sort of the work that I was supposed to be doing. And I was, you know, playing up a little bit when the teacher decided that they would, I can remember being taken into the middle of the art room in the building. And then he put up four of those, those pinup boards around me. And I was sitting in a, in my own isolated desk surrounded by four pinup boards and I just thought, ah, to hell with this. I'm not going to bother showing up to these classes anymore and did a little bit of wagging towards the late end of high school. And so, yeah, um, it just, you know, that was sort of the rebellious side of myself at the time. But yeah, like I think after high school, I definitely became like a lot more, a lot more sociable. I used to go to all sorts of house parties. Like I, I would even show up to some house parties by myself and not know anyone. And by the end of the night, like I'd have a great time um, and it was all, you know, really good fun. So yeah, I think sort of after school, I, 
I'm not sure really what it was that prompted, you know, my confidence or I do say that personality is malleable. Um, sort of who we are a few years ago doesn't mean we'll be the same person sort of two years from now, for example. So yeah, I definitely had a big personality shift after high school. Yeah, I think that that was good too, because in allowing to meet new people, um, if I didn't have that personality shift, who knows, like all my great mates today are not people that um, I was mates with in high school. So let's fast forward into adult life now. And this is my final question on this topic. Who's the Sean I'm talking to now as opposed to back then? And how do you reflect on that period of your life in, in shaping the person you are today? You know, if if you had any, you know, knowing what you do now, w- would you say anything to that sort of 13 or 14 year old Sean maybe? Oh, look, if we could go back and do it all again, I'm sure we would have the perfect plan. But I think really at the at that time in my life, I didn't really have a sense of purpose. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with myself. And I think that's really common for a lot of people. Like, you know, we're too young to understand what it is we want in our lives. And when we're that young, we don't have any kind of awareness. We don't have any information um, at our disposal. And we're sort of really quite naive. Um, Our belief sets are not based in any kind of empiricism. It's just kind of what our surrounding environment uh, is and how we adapt to it so um, I'm not really sort of you know obviously I think we all kind of look to our past life and go gee I wish I had done x y and z but the reality is you never could have and you just have to um, just move forward with things so Our final topic of conversation, Sean, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter about our mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? Yeah, I think it's pretty good. You know, like I've never been diagnosed with a mental health disorder. I think that really, again, that's quite, unless you have a legitimate cognitive disorder, and that's a different thing. But I think in terms of mental health, I think it's really uh, environmentally adaptive, like your personal conditions, or if maybe you're working in a in a toxic uh, work environment or something like that. So yeah, I think for me at the moment, it's pretty good. If there's any kind of mental health that I have sort of struggled with, I guess it's sort of being a bit anxious here and there. And I think that there are reasonable triggers for, for that kind of anxiety. So yeah, I don't really consider that to be like a like a disorder per se. I think it's just part of the human experience. And I find that it goes away in accordance with sort of your um, environmental surroundings. I can remember sort of when I was building building my house um, and how how stressful that was and how and how much of an impact that had on me sort of when I was 24 or so. There's this thing, um, I'm not sure if you've heard of this term, but it's called getting zeroed out in life. And I think that um, it happens to everyone. Like we all have a zeroing out experience. And I think sort of my biggest one um, for me where I was sort of at my lowest point was sort of I was building a house and I had this idea that, you know, I couldn't wait to move out and I just wanted to be the the king of the castle. And, you know, I ended up having the best two years of my life living by myself in this house that I'd built. <laughs> you know, I think that I was a bit too young in sort of committing to, you know, you know, having to make the the mortgage repayments because um, I'm not sure it's probably the same in, in the UK, but like housing in Perth is extremely expensive. Like you can be earning an above average wage and you cannot afford a average house. It's it's pretty tough, but you know, I wanted to I wanted to do it and I think that I sort of committed too soon and I ended up sort of living there, but I, I ended up having to rent the house out because you know I couldn't just continue to make the repayments by myself. And for that I felt really terrible. Like that was sort of my biggest zeroing out experience to me that you know I had to move back back home and that that was really emasculating for me Um, and I think yeah that was definitely the lowest point in my life but you know I think I've bounced back pretty well and I think that's sort of having the resilience to bounce back and sort of continue is definitely you know a good quality to have. And what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your general mental health Sean? I always say that not everyone has a mental health condition, but everyone has mental health. You know, which ones have you found that have worked and and, and which ones that haven't? You mentioned gym and exercise earlier on in the pod as, as a big one to me and, and, and certainly one which has helped a lot of guests, including myself. Yeah, definitely. Maintaining uh, 
good physical shape is, you know, it's paramount. It's going to extend your life and it gives you self-confidence. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things that's just imperative for your mental health. So yeah, there's that. I go to the gym as often as I can. You know, that is definitely um, something that, that is a huge help towards sort of getting through through the week. Um, but yeah, like making music, something that bring, brings you a sense of self-worth. Um, like for me, you know, music is sort of my mission in life. I think having like your own mission in life is is really paramount to, you know, as a method to improve your your mental health. And so, yeah, like the other thing I probably want to mention is avoiding sedation, consuming too much junk TV or participating in Facebook outrage mobs or things like that. I don't think that's like to me that I couldn't imagine sort of spending my free time doing those sorts of things it's it and it can be really hard for like a lot of people sort of they go to work and they do what they have to do but they don't really have anything outside of their work unless it is that unless they're one of the lucky people who work the perfect job that they love like I'm not saying I don't I'm not saying I totally totally hate the job that I do I just think that it's sort of more like I spend too much time in the one place so things like avoiding sedation is a big one like watch a little bit of tv here and there but don't go overboard same with like you know like eating and and all that sort of thing like try to avoid those sorts of pleasures and just do them here and there but don't let them consume your life the other thing i guess i'm quite into is i like listening to a lot of podcasts as well um like i have to drive like I spend two hours a day in the car and normally like I listen to Soul Lection and once I've listened to um, all my music shows that I like, then I would switch it over to listening to a lot of audio books. And, you know, I'm really into like, you know, different sciences. I really like sort of behavioral and uh, evolutionary psychology resources. Those those are really quite insightful and very, very profound. And yeah, you can learn a lot um, in terms of mental health and and well-being from those resources so yeah i think those are things that that work for me toxic masculinity is something that we talk about a lot on this pod sean and it's one we try and break down a lot now there's no right or wrong answer to this question but what would you define it as um and what examples have you experienced in your life in australia that you can share with the listeners as, as you had a really interesting perspective on this when we spoke off air so for me i don't think it's something that exists um at all i think i think what I think off air, I think I said it was um, what's known as an operative social convention. I guess sort of allow me to sort of give you my hypothesis on this one. Hopefully I don't sort of end up being a bit too long-winded. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of what is known as RK selection theory. Um, and it's basically like this is really going down deep here. <laughs> so I hope I'm not going to confuse anyone. But it's basically an evolutionary imperative that relates to uh, quantity, which is R, and quality, which is K of offspring. Even though our gender differences um, have evolved to be complementary to one another, like we're a bi-parental species for the most part, it is men's and women's sexual strategies that are fundamentally antagonistic towards the other. So men's uh, biological masculine imperative is to spread the seed so it's unlimited access to unlimited sexuality and i guess sort of men's compulsion for <laughs> pornography is probably the most obvious confirmation of this so men's sexual strategy as a result of our biology is inherently are selected you know because men can potentially reproduce thousands of times um, men's investment costs are far lower than women's in reproduction, so men's most pragmatic uh, inherent strategy is an innate drive for unlimited access to unlimited sexuality. Hope I'm kind of making sense here. <laughs> yeah, so women's strategy is inherently K-selected because women's reproductive investment costs are really very high. So things like gestation and nurturing, you know, provisioning, protection of the offspring, they're all sort of evolutionary imperatives that drive women's strategy. Yeah, because women's strategy is sort of dualistic in nature, which is a thing called known as strategic pluralism theory. I guess you can Google that one. <laughs> sort of women have evolved to consolidate reproductively on the best genetic potential in men, as well as the best parental investment potential. So here's what I've got to say. So in order for one gender's uh, sexual strategy to succeed, the other one must abandon its own. 
So what happened was the feminine imperative had to come up with social conventions like toxic masculinity in order to ensure that their mating strategy has primacy over the other. So that's just sort of my hypothesis on that one. I know it's really quite deep and technical, but I really like sort of having like a a, a very nuts and bolts sort of under the hood understanding of those things. It's, you know, it's really quite fascinating to know these things. So yeah, my take on it is that from an evolutionary point of view that it doesn't really exist. And I think it's something that sort of snowballed over generations sort of since the sexual revolution in the 60s where we put unilateral control over the human reproductive process into the hands of women. Um, and then, yeah, you know, of course, like I've met, um, you know, plenty of men who have pathological disorders, but I wouldn't consider that it's because of their masculinity. Do you remember, do you ever remember seeing the Gillette ad? Yeah, like you get sort of generations of boys and young men that see that and you know, they either become sort of gender loathing or else they're gender confused. And sort of what happens is these movements in the mass media and the news and marketing sort of take masculinity and try and sell it back to men by sort of dangling the manhood merit badge per se. You know, they say a real man does X, Y, and Z, you know, things like that, that we sort of hear now and again. So yeah, it's um, these sort of activist movements defining what masculinity to men who either hate their own masculinity or else they're confused about it. And uh, it becomes like a matter of, well, like these guys are like, well, so how do I qualify? I need to do all these things that I've been told in the media that makes me a man or else I'll, you know, be ostracized if I don't. So you define, so, you, so you're so you talking about it more from a sort of almost like a political theory or philosophy standpoint Whereas I think I would probably I would probably come out from I def, I would probably define toxic masculinity as like you said towards the end of what you were saying about this criterion about if you don't fit a particular bracket if you don't you know if you're if you if you show vulnerability if you show emotion if you show feelings you are called a pussy or you're accused of being gay or you're socially ostracized that is that's probably for me what I would define as toxic masculinity because you're saying you have to be a certain trait as a man to, I guess, be successful, I guess, is the, is the base level. Well, I like how you use the term positive masculinity. The way I sort of look at things, what are the sort of innate proclivities that make up a biological human male? Sort of like what makes a guy a guy? So I guess you could say like testosterone. Okay, that's a biological thing that men have more of than women do. Um, and so how do those biological aspects of being a man translate into natural proclivities? And I think that part of our evolution, and I'll give you some references um, sort of at the end, but things like um, stoicism, dominance, heightened aggression, competitiveness, th those are all sort of evolved aspects of the male psyche that have served humanity for millennia. And that's sort of what our evolutionary past has been built on. And it, yeah, like, as you said, so it, it depends on how these things are applied, but I don't think sort of those things getting like totally demonized are really sort of healthy for the mental health of of a man sort of to be shamed for um you know for for your for your innate proclivities like those things are part of every male's starting package that's sort of that's your evolved mental firmware okay that's a good, a good conversation to have it's a different one that i probably had to it's a different answer than i had to previous guests for sure um just just on um just on positive masculinity sean some guests have described it as being emotionally intelligent. Some people have described it as being self-confident, being receptive to the needs of others. What other qualities would you kind of list if you had to describe a man as being positively masculine, would you say? Yeah, um, yeah, definitely, you know, self, self-confidence and emotional intelligence are good things. So I guess um, if I can elaborate more on that, I would think that um, sort of embracing, you know, your your burden of performance, you know, and and really sort of taking it by the reins and, and sort of having a mission. Um, I think definitely playing life to win, as I mentioned before, sort of not playing life on God mode where you get the cheat codes to life and everything is just going to be easy for you. I think it's like a healthy thing to sort of be competitive and, and put your best foot forward out there. Another thing I think is that's great is like making yourself your mental point of origin because I really think that 
you cannot help others and really until you first help yourself. And if you're sort of, you possess those positively masculine qualities, you make yourself your mental point of origin, then it translates to better outcomes for, you know, the people that you're surrounded by, your friends, your family, all that sort of thing. So yeah, I think the other one I would probably mention is sort of having the resilience to bounce back when things really hit rock bottom, like being zeroed out. That's that's really important, um, especially, I guess we'll talk about it a bit later, like the suicide rate for men is, um, I saw um, in the book called, what was it? it's by uh, Dr. Warren Farrell, it was either why men are the way they are, there's a book called The Boy Crisis. It really explains a lot about what makes a guy a guy and um, what it means to be positively masculine. So, And just as a final question, Sean, um, you know, referencing the, the obviously the very high suicide rates of men across the world, not just in the UK, what more do we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in showing vulnerability and showing emotions that are, that are outside kind of perhaps um, limited archetypes that we've been placed upon us before, you know, things like heightened aggression or violence um, and making them feel safe and opening up about their mental health. Yeah, I think it is really important that that we have the conversation. Um, and I think it's really like, I guess, so, so what I've sort of put forward, I guess, isn't sort of what you hear from most people that have probably spoken on the show. I think that, yes, people are, are too afraid to speak up but i really think it's because of like what we've got got going on at the moment like outrage culture and cancel culture and i think it's important to have very honest conversations with people and like i should be able to feel comfortable like to you when i give sort of my my hypothesis and i think that we should sort of what i consider is that nowadays we sort of live in the feels before reels era as in like we're always offended about everything all of the time. And I don't think that's a really healthy thing to be prioritizing your emotion before reason. So I think men's mental firmware sort of doesn't like we, we process emotion differently from women. And I think that's a really important thing that we speak to other men about sort of the issues that we've got going on in society sort of without that, you know, outrage culture or people getting offended all of the time. I think there's a lot of fear around guys who speak out and say, if you were to speak out and say something that goes against the the narrative of the establishment per se, I think that there's a lot of fear that guys are either going to get called like an MRA, a men's rights activist, or you know, an incel or a sexist or a misogynist for just pointing out some kind of critical observation. And I think, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of Professor Gard Saad, um, and he talks about sort of like our ability to exercise free speech is slowly diminishing. He he had a um, a quote here that I that I want to read out, and he said only the permanently unemployed have true freedom of speech. And it says it seems untenable that in a free society the people who can express freedom of speech are those who are forever more to be unemployed. So if you're currently employed by any entity, uh, you can no longer express the most banal of opinions that is contrary to the expected narrative as your employer can fire you for holding the wrong views. If you're unemployed or plan on being employed in the future, your employer might find sort of what you've said is objectionable and so you'll keep quiet about it. And of course, via outrage archaeology, anything you might have said in the past can be dug up and used against you. Sort of if you're self-employed, you cannot express any opinions because if it goes against the politically correct orthodoxy, then you might be cancelled by a mass boycotting. Um, And hence it is literally the case that we're creating an environment now that even the most courageous amongst us are sort of being beaten down into silence. And that really stuck with me. Like, I think that's a really dark side of where we're at today is that we can't, like, it's, it's, it seems to be getting harder and harder for us to be able to have a conversation where we sort of discuss ideas and discuss what's going on without sort of someone getting outraged or someone getting upset and, you know, having a big hissy fit about things. When we talk about sort of the male suicide rate being, I think, sort of five times that of women, I think that's sort of, it's because of that sort of culture that we've got got to that. So yeah, I, like my opinion is that human beings, they'll never transcend above their own evolution. 
they'll only adapt with the environments that they're that they're surrounded by but the proclivities really never disappear it's important to have a conversation sort of like the one we're having now um, where there's no malice involved or anything it's just like in the way that sort of the best the great professors of our time in the way that they have their debates i think it's important we discuss it like that rather than sort of you know virtue signaling and pointing at each other and um it's not really that doesn't really make for for a good conversation it doesn't really help anyone either well i think that's all we've got time for on this episode of behind the decks I want to say a big thank you to Sean, aka Ninth Floor Funk Apartment, for being my special guest on this episode and letting me go behind the decks with him. That Ninth Floor Funk Apartment and Jar Funk collab up to you we discussed will play us out, and I'll put a link to where you can stream it and listen to Ninth Floor Funk Apartment in the description of the pod. As always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it, or feeling very, very generous, write us a review on iTunes. Stay tuned for the next episode of Behind the Decks. And remember, it's always okay to vent. Yeah, the stars so blue. Yeah, the stars so blue.